This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out the details that are relevant for explaining and defending our Catholic faith. I'm Carlo Broussard, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers, and the host for this podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the Gospel and Second Reading for the Second Sunday of Ordinary Time, Year A. Of the three apologetical details that we're going to look at, two of them come from the Gospel, which is John 1, 29-34, and the third detail comes from the Second Reading, which is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 1-3. So let's start with the Gospel. Again, this is John 1, 29-34. Here's what we read. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one of whom I said, A man is coming after me, who ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. I did not know him, but the reason why I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. John testified further, saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from the sky and remain upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. All right, so the first detail from this gospel reading that's relevant for doing apologetics is the combination of the images of water and Spirit in connection with Jesus' baptism. Although this detail doesn't give any direct evidence for the understanding that baptism saves us and that our Lord wills for us to be baptized in order to be saved, it does establish an interpretive context for Jesus' born-again discourse in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Recall, in John 3, 3 through 5, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. To which Nicodemus asks, must a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And of course, Jesus responds, unless a man is born again of water and spirit. Christians who believe that baptism is an instrument of salvation argue that Jesus' phrase, water and spirit, here in John 3, 5, refers to baptism. But some Christians don't accept this interpretation. This being the case, it's necessary that we who believe that this refers to baptism provide some evidence for our interpretation. And here is where the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday comes into play. Note how both the images of water and spirit are present here in the gospel gospel passage, and both are associated with baptism. It speaks of John baptizing with water, and Jesus as the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Also, The passage records John the Baptist's reference to Jesus' baptism, an event where both water and spirit are present together. John the Baptist tells his hearers, I saw the spirit descend as a dove from heaven and remain on him while Jesus was in the waters being baptized. So given that both water and spirit are present in this passage in connection with baptism, it establishes a baptismal context in which we can interpret the images of water and spirit in John 3, 3 through 5. 
And we actually have further confirming evidence. With this evidence, we can add John 3.23 and John 4, 1 through 2. In John 3.23, the gospel writer records how John the Baptist was baptizing at Enon near Salim. In John 4, 1 through 2, we're told that the apostles went about baptizing. If the instruction to be born again of water and spirit in John 3, 3 through 5, is surrounded by the theme of baptism, both before, and that's the gospel passage for this upcoming Sunday Mass, and after the John uh, 4, 1 through 2, then it's actually John 3, 23, and John 4, 1 through 2, then it's reasonable to conclude that baptism is what Jesus has in mind when he speaks of the necessity to be born of water and spirit for the entrance for entrance into heaven. So that's basically the line of reasoning. That's the argument. So this gospel passage of the images of water and spirit being associated with Jesus's baptism provides for us this interpretive context in order to shed light upon what Jesus means when he speaks of being born again of water and spirit in John 3, 3 through 5. And again, the reference to the images of water and spirit, they, they don't give us direct evidence for our understanding of baptism. They just contribute to the overall argument that Christians construct in favor of the view that baptism is necessary for salvation. Okay, so the second detail from the gospel that has some relevance for doing apologetics is John's reference to Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. This is some fun stuff here. Check this out. This is a phrase that we find on the lips of Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where he tells the disciples to remain in Jerusalem and to wait for the Father's promise, which he identifies as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, many charismatic Christians, both Protestants and Catholic, think that by baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is referring to a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit, which is often, so they argue, accompanied by an outward manifestation of certain spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues or something. But for Catholics, this language of being baptized in the Holy Spirit need not be reduced to such a subjective experience that we may have of him, or the ability to speak in strange tongues. It arguably refers to a sacrament. And what sacra which sacrament might that be? The sacrament of confirmation. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, Jesus instructs the apostles not to leave Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which, according to Peter in Acts 11, 15 through 16, it's a reference to the descent of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, check this out. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches in paragraph 1288 that the sacrament of confirmation, quote, in a certain way perpetuates the grace of Pentecost in the church, close quote. And this is confirmed in Acts 8, when Peter and John lay hands on the newly baptized Christians in Samaria and give them a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit similar to that of the Christians in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. So think about this. If Pentecost was the event where the early Christians received their quote-unquote baptism of the Holy Spirit and the, lay and the laying on of hands in confirmation perpetuates the graces of Pentecost, well then, at least according to Catholic thought, it follows that to be confirmed is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
insofar as by means of the sacrament, we receive the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit that allows us courageously to spread and defend the faith in word and deed, like the apostles on the day of Pentecost, as recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 2. Now, it's important to note here that not all Christians have the same charisms or these charisms, these outward manifestations of the Spirit. Just because someone is a confirmed Christian, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to have the gift of tongues, right? And if somebody does not have the gift of tongues, that doesn't mean they haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 12, 30, not all members of Christ's body have these gifts. Wherever, whenever he's lifts, listing these various charisms of the Holy Spirit, he explicitly tells us that the Holy Spirit gives as he wills, and not everyone has these gifts. So just because you might not have the gift of speaking in tongues, it doesn't follow that you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have been baptized in the Holy Spirit if you have been confirmed with the sacrament of confirmation. So, to the question, have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? <laughs> Christians who've been validly confirmed can say with some charismatic flair, amen, brother, right? We could do that because we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, I get it. When people are talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they had a profound experience of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I've had that experience myself. I know of many other people who've had that experience of the Holy Spirit, and I, I understand what they're talking about. But I do think it is important that we explain to people that if we're going to use that language of the baptism of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, we need to first and primarily be affirming that we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit with that special outpouring of the Holy Spirit, like on the day of Pentecost on the Sacrament of Confirmation. And whatever subjective, powerful experience we have of the Holy Spirit, then we can articulate that in a way that's connected with confirmation, saying, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit through the Sacrament of Confirmation, and now I've had that powerful experience where I'm beginning to manifest the fruits of the Spirit in my life. So, hopefully um, a thing or three for you to think about. Okay, the final detail that we're going to look at in this episode is Paul's reference to the Corinthians as holy, or as in some translations put it, saints, which is found in the second reading for this upcoming Sunday Mass. That is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Here's what Paul writes, quote, to you who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, other translations have it there, called to be saints, with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, again, some translations translate the Greek word for holy, hagios, as saints. Calling Christians saints, or holy ones, is, or was, is currently today, and was a common practice for Paul in his letters. Now, for some Christians, this is problematic for the common custom among many Christians of reserving the term saints for souls in heaven. The argument goes like this. Listen, if the Bible says that we're all saints, Christians shouldn't reserve the title for a select few, like Catholics, Orthodox, and others do. So how should we respond to this? Well, 
the response I'm going to share with you here, I articulate and explain in one of the chapters of my book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. So I would recommend you get a hold of that book if you want to, you know, go back over this material that I'll be sharing with you here. First of all, the word saint comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy one. The Greek equivalent, hagios, which means sanctified, set apart, or holy, is used in a variety of ways in the Bible, both the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, and the New Testament. So, for example, Christians on earth are saints in 2 Corinthians 1.1, Ephesians 1.1, Colossians 1.2, Philippians 1.1, and Revelation 5.8. The Israelites are holy, Greek there, hagios, in the Septuagint, in Leviticus 20.26, 20, and therefore are called saints in Psalm 34, 9, Daniel 7, 18, and 8, 24. Angels are called, quote-unquote, holy ones, or saints, in Psalm 89, 6, Daniel 4, 13, verses 17, 23, and Daniel chapter 8, verse 13. A person of notable holiness is called holy, or a saint, in Isaiah 4, 3 through 4, and Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 through 53. Jesus is the Holy One of God in Mark 1.24, Luke 4.34, and John 6.67-69. God is the Holy One of Israel in Psalm 71.22, Psalm 78.41, 89.18, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, and Jeremiah 50.29. So we see that in the Bible, hagios is used in a variety of different ways. The Catholic Church uses the term saint in a few different ways as well, all of which have to do with those united to Christ. The most familiar use is with regard to those Christians who, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2683, have preceded us into the kingdom of heaven and have their virtues publicly recognized and proclaimed when they're canonized as saints. But the church also extends application of the term saint to every soul united to Christ in baptism, which includes Christians on earth, souls in purgatory, and of course those souls in heaven who haven't been canonized. The Catechism explains this in paragraph 1475. It states this, quote, In the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home, those who are expiating their sins in purgatory, and those who are still pilgrims on earth. Between them, there is to an, there is to an abundant exchange of all good things. The Catechism elsewhere states in paragraph 948, quote, After confessing the Holy Catholic Church, the Apostles' Creed adds the communion of saints. In a certain sense, this article is, fur is a further explanation of the preceding. What is the Church if not the assembly of all the saints? The communion of saints is the Church. It goes on, the term communion of saints, therefore, has two closely linked meanings. Communion in holy things, sancta, and among holy persons, sancti. Since saint means holy one, and since all baptized Christians are holy persons, sancti in Latin, set apart unto the Lord, it follows that all baptized Christians, whether on this side of the veil or the other, are saints. Now, it's true that Catholics don't go around calling each other saint so-and-so right? St. Chris Check, St. Tim Staples, St. Jimmy Aiken. No, right? We don't do that. The church typically uses the term in a narrower and more formal way 
for those individual Christians who are perfected in the heavenly kingdom. Now, why is that? Well, since the blessed in heaven are perfected in righteousness, they're saints in the fullest sense of the term. They're completely holy, perfected by God and separated unto him. Unlike us, their saintliness is not mixed with sin and disordered inclinations. Our saintly status is a share in part of the saintly status of those in heaven. This seems to be how St. Paul describes it. In Colossians 1.12, he writes this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Greek word here for share is meris, which literally means part or portion. Now, it can mean to take part in the same amount, but it can also mean to take part in partially, as opposed to possessing in full. For example, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 13-14, I hope you will understand fully, as you have understood, understood in part, merus, that you can be proud of us as we can be of you on the day of the Lord Jesus. Just as here on earth, we know only in part, but will know in full at the end of time, so too we share in part in the inheritance of the saints who dwell in heaven. And we will share in full when we get to heaven. Because of this difference and the unique status that the saints in light have, it's fitting that Catholics honor them with the title saint. Bottom line, we reserve the title in order to signify they have saintliness in full, unlike us who have it only in part. And of course, that's going to inspire us. I don't have the title saint, reminds me that I have saintliness in part, and that inspires me to pursue achieving saintliness in full with the blessed in heaven. And so I, I think there's some practical value here, not only sort of the theological value of it, of expressing the reality of the fullness of saintliness that they have in perfection in heaven, but also a practical value of inspiring us to be holy and to pursue sainthood. As our former employee here at Catholic Answers, Patrick Coffin, used to say, be a saint. What else is there? <laughs> right? Amen to that. Well, my friends, that does it for this episode of the Sunday Catholic Word. We have three apologetical topics to focus on this Sunday. The meaning of being born again by water and spirit, the meaning of the language of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, and the Catholic practice of reserving the title saint for the Holy Ones in Heaven. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast, friends. Please be sure to tell your friends about it and invite them to subscribe as well. I hope that you have a great second Sunday of Ordinary Time. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting catholicanswerspodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.